Good evening, good evening, everyone. Am I switched on here? Can you actually hear? Good, brilliant. So, thank you, Nigel. Um, so, um, I'm going to very, very quickly introduce my, my very, very wonderful and much-loved um, author, um, Howard Jacobson. I mean, I've loved Howard for many a year, actually, before I managed to actually get around to publishing him, ever since his early days with wonderful books like Peeping Tom or Coming From Behind, and when he sort of broke upon the... Uh, literary scene, and um, uh, uh, um, he was, uh, he, he, I, I know recently he even found in old caches of letters in his attic, I think, sort of letters from me bemoaning the fact that I haven't been able to get the paperback rights and things like root schmoots. He didn't offer enough. I did, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. But I was, I was you know, but I was, I was there, I was trying. And, um, and I said to him, I remember when you were shortlisted for the Booker, um, for, for, the, for, the, for the Finkler question, I remember coming around and bringing, uh, what was I brought around? A bottle of champagne, I think. And I just said to you, as we were standing on the street, I was born to publish you. And, um, and then, um, uh, uh, but, but, but Howard, Howard, Howard's got a steely streak in him. When he, when he had won the Booker, he came in to see us, and the, all the taxi drivers had been hooting at him as he walked down Berwick Street, where it was, and he said, he said, well, you may have been born to publish me, but I was born for this, which is, you know, <laughs> kind of, you know, this was the sort of accolade that came after, um, deservedly, I think. Uh, of course, I think, but, you know, I mean, sort of about uh, after winning the booker. I mean, so, so the question in a way, in my mind, is, you know, why did I always love Howard? Why is Howard so great? And we can think about this in terms of, for us, you know, the Vinkley question or, um, indeed, zoo time. Um, and um, uh, and for me, it's always been with you, Howard, the way you interrogate the world. So you have a number of levels on which you do that. So and if you look at the Finkler question, if you look at Zoo Time, um, and you look at all your work, I mean, there's sort of diff different levels at which you in, uh, at which you interrogate life. So you, you do the comedy, you do the humour, you do the satire, you do the turning it all on its head in a sort of black, salty way. But you also do your tenderness and your sadness and your tragedy. Um, and, um, and every book is different and every, different, every book is a different kind of way of looking at life. And that's, in a way, that is why you have always been my favourite writer and you always were. Um, and... Um, so my question to you to kick off with, and I hope you're going to help me out on this one because uh, 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 this is, you know, interviewing is not my natural gift, but... Um, um, if one you would were, never what, know what, that. Oh, oh, you, what? <laughs> one would never know that. But, what, but, you know, what would you like to... You know, look at the Finkler, look at Zoo Time, look at everything, you look at uh, the Mighty Waltz, you look at Coming From Behind, you look at, what would you like to be remembered for? Being a comic writer or... A writer of emotion and tragedy and depth and anxiety, because I mean, you do both. And to me, you do them brilliantly both, and you mix them brilliantly in a way that no British writer actually does. Um, we could talk about who does, but that would be quite boring because we're talking about you. So let's, you know, what, what, what would you like to be remembered as? Okay, that's a, Can I just say, just before, we, uh, before I answer that, well, thank you for coming. It's very nice to, to have, and to have talked to people who've, who've read it and liked it and laughed 
which is, which is wonderful. Thank you. And just to say thank you to you too in a public space because my, Michael has been very supportive. And there's no question in my mind that one of the, one of the reasons why I miraculously won, won the Booker Prize was Michael. He presented me in a different light. How these things work is a very, very complex issue. But anyway, I feel I owe you a debt, so I, I acknowledge it here. Just as a matter of interest, Michael said that when I was... It was actually when I was long-listed that Michael brought a, a bottle of champagne round. And I, said, uh, and I said, do you know, I feel I've got... I'm a pessimistic person, but I actually <coughs> feel quite good about this. I think we could go further. And he said, behave. <laughs> I did. And he slapped down. And, and you said, you're just like my dad. And he always... That's what yes, you said. But, you're but, just like my dad. But my dad is alive. My dad isn't alive, but my mother is alive. And my mother was also saying, behave. My mother, my mother was, was ringing me up almost every day. And, on, and uh, once I was on the shortlist, twice a day, to say, now you know you're not going to win this. You don't have a chance. So I had him saying behave, and I had my mother saying you're not going to win this. So it was a miracle, really. Um, and I had my wife, who was going very, very still. Uh, and we both agreed, you make this pact that you're not going to, you, you're, not, you know, you don't, you're not going to win. The chances are stacked against you, the six to one against anyway. And it's a miracle you've got that far. And is it, isn't it wonderful how far you've got? But there is also the other... The, the more dangerous pact that you make, and this is the pact with Mephistopheles. I could, you know, I just could, you know. Um, and, I knew, and I knew that somewhere or other she might have been making that pact while I was making that pact. So. But anyway, there was always Michael to say, behave. Your question. I think I, became a, I think I became what's called a comic writer, and I get very exasperated around the word comic. Whenever I'm called a comic writer, I deny it, and then whenever people don't think I'm funny, I get very angry. So I like to, <laughs> I like to be found funny, but I don't like to be called a comic writer. I'd like to be called maybe a tragic writer that writes comedies. If you, I mean, you said before, not many people have that mix. The truth is, not many people do. Not many people make you laugh. English, yes, English, English. The English novel is, is no long. It was once a thing that made you laugh. Um, Fielding made one laugh. Jane Austen still makes me laugh. Dickens, of course, no one has made readers laugh like Dickens. The, the English novel once was a wonderful place that one went to for laughter. Now there is, there is an embarrassment around. There's always been a slight English embarrassment around laughter. And I think that embarrassment is at a pitch at the moment and has been for a few years. Why that is, I don't know. Um, my first novel, Coming From Behind, was a, was a, was a, was a funny novel. Um, I hadn't thought I'd write a funny novel, though I knew I could do funny things. I could make speeches at golden weddings and bar mitzvahs and make people laugh, and I thought I'm quite good at that. But I never thought that's what I would write, because what I wanted to write was tragedy. Um, big tragedy. War and Peace, um, The Brothers Karamazov, those kind of things. And I, and I did attempt late Henry James. I was very keen to write like that. And writing what I wrote, my first novel, was a kind of, at the time, it felt like a settling for less. It was a campus novel, and I had never wanted to write a campus novel. I'd never read a campus novel. Once I realised I was writing a campus novel, I thought I'd better go out and see how campus novels were written, see what they looked like. And I remember having Kingsley Amis and, and Malcolm Bradbury and David Lodge open um, on a table, and I'd go each morning to see what they did. Um, not because I so much wanted to do what they were doing, but I wanted to make sure that they weren't funnier than I was being. Um, 
And mainly I thought they would, but that's probably not, that's probably not for me to say. But, it, but I wrote that novel, which was a comedy, because I was in complete despair. And I never knew, I didn't know what else to do with that despair. And I've never known what else to do with despair except make comedy out of it. I was in despair because I was teaching in, a, in, a, in Wolverhampton Polytechnic. I mean, laugh, laugh if you like, you're allowed. <laughs> Normally when I say Wolverhampton Polytechnic, laugh. people yeah, okay. roar with laughter. <laughs> I was in my middle 30s, I was between marriages, I was between everything really. Um, and I was very miserable and I was teaching at Wolverhampton Polytechnic. And they moved the English department, which they had no regard for at the Polytechnic. They moved us, and we were all Oxford and Cambridge men, very highfalutin, and all wanting, if not to write like Henry James, to teach late Henry James. And they moved us as a kind of punishment into Wolverhampton Wanderers football ground. That's where we taught. And that kind of was the end, the final indignity. And I thought, there's nothing you can do with an indignity like that except make fun of it. I'd always written after indignity. If I'd been humiliated... Um, in love or in any other way, and often in love as when I was young, that was when I tried to write something. I thought the only way, the only escape route from ignominy was writing. And that's, that would still be the same. Fortunately, there are, there are, there are fewer, as you get older, there are fewer ignominies, or you, except for the ignominy of the aging body. And there's, you know, there, are, there are good comic novels to be written about that, and indeed they have been written. So I, it felt like settling less, for settling for less, um, and I thought, well, all right, that's what I do, and it's a noble enough thing, and people are finding it funny. And there was a little nagging thing that I wanted to strike a deeper note, although you know, I insist that there's nothing greater than comedy, that comedy is not the opposite of serious, that when comedy is really at its best, it's as serious as you can get. Sure. But I nonetheless felt that there were notes I was not striking and couldn't strike for a while, mm. um, didn't feel I had a right to. I don't know how how little middle-class ladies, leave the middle and leave the ladies, how middle-class people, uh, large middle-class men and little middle-class ladies can write these thrillers in which thousands of people are murdered. They just, I can't, I've never, I don't think I've, have any, don't think I've ever murdered anybody in my novels, but at the beginning of my novels, I couldn't kill anybody either. I couldn't have anybody die because I didn't feel I had the right. Well, you didn't think of question. I mean, well, the, the, well, it's changed. Uh, and what changed was that when my father died, my, yeah. father who had pre my father protected me from life, actually. Uh, uh, um, uh, <laughs> and when he died, I felt, well, I know, I know a little bit. He, it isn't just that I'd, I'd experienced that grief and, and, I'd, um, and all that. It's almost as though a permission had been given. I was now allowed to, to find a, to a deeper note and to strike deeper notes. And it was a kind of... He'd stopped me, in a way. In a, some sort of way, he'd stopped me. My father literally did that to me. He didn't, he didn't metaphorically cover my eyes. He literally covered my eyes. Um, and it happened a lot. We used to be... My father worked on the markets, and I'd go out with him in, a, in, in his van, and we were travelling on winter roads, icy roads, foggy roads. This is talking about the 50s and early 60s now. And there were always car accidents. And my father was always seeing a car accident and, and screaming the van to a halt and running out and, you know, ripping cars, ripping doors off burning vehicles... And, um, and pulling people out from the wreckage. And I'd go ambling over a little boy, frightened. And, and, and then he'd, he always had the time to do that. So I never, I never saw anything. And my father did that in, throughout my life. And on the very last day, I, on what, my last day as a, as, a, as a boy, it should have been, my father took me to Piccadilly Station when I was 18 to put me on the train to Cambridge. And I was off to Cambridge to be a man. And my father took looked after me, put my luggage on the train, sat, shook my hand, 
that's what we did in those days. There was yeah. no hugging and all that. Yeah. There was yeah. a few yeah. punches yeah. on the shoulder. Yeah, I know that football and then he stuff. shook my hand warmly. Um, and we didn't, he didn't say things like, you know, be a, be a man, my son, you know, off mm. you go into the... Uh, he probably said behave like... <laughs> <you know. laughs> and then suddenly excited. I sat down and, you know, that was that. I was on my own and he'd gone. And suddenly he hadn't gone and that happened. And that was because he'd sat me on the train opposite someone who was dead. <laughs> a dead guard. And on my first day into the world as a student, I was sitting opposite a dead man that my father had to protect me from. So my father stopped the train, stop, 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 carried the dead man off the train, called the ambulances and things. And that affected my Cambridge life thereafter. I kind of could never feel that I'd... So I, if I may put it like this, I needed my father to die. I did. Uh, I was very close to my father, and it, and it distressed me immeasurably. And I saw him. I saw his, you know, I, I, was, I was one of those people who were haunted by, by, by the dead. I, saw, I felt I was seeing him everywhere. But that enabled me to strike a deeper note. But your question was, what do I attach most value to? Yes, I think it was, and, yes. <laughs> and the interesting, thing, the interesting thing about my relations with Michael, Michael has said all along, yes, that's made me laugh, but I like something else. And what he did with the whole look of the Finkler question was to, take, was to take it to take the idea of the book, the look of the book, the way the book was presented and put out into the world, away from, well, away from two things. Things very, very Jewish, which the Finkler question is. And thanks to Michael, who moved that out of the way, not out of any nefarious impulse, um, but he was interested in other things as much. I managed for about two months after the Finkler question on the book, right, never to talk, never to use the word, never to mention Sorry about that. <laughs> don't worry, I'm dealing with it. Are you listening? I'm dealing with it. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. Okay. And what Michael, and the other thing that Michael did was to move it away from the comedy and say, this is a very melancholy book. And, and when, Andrew, when Andrew Motion announced the winner of the Booker Prize, that astonishing night of dinner, and the several people in this room who were at that, at that table, it's a great night when that, when that happens. It doesn't happen to you often. The word, the key word, the word, there's always a word which tells you, you know, you've won or lost. Um, and there were lots of things that were said, as, and, as Sir Andrew Motion mentioned, you know, and the, and the qualities are, you know, and he mentioned the comedy, and I thought, well, yeah, that's me, but it's also Peter Carey. And then he mentioned some other quality, and I thought, well, that's Andrea Levy, and, that's, um, and we all were very, very still. Um, and then he used the word plangency. Yes. And I just and I felt, just, I I just felt Michael any, go anyone... very, very stiff at the word plangency, because he was sitting next to me, very, very stiff like that. And I, too, for the first time, thought, I'm the plangent one here. Yeah. And I that was... That. <laughs> I thought, that's it. There's only one book on this list that can it's be fun. called plangent. But it was you that... I mean, I may have written the plangency, but it was Michael who kind of saw and put the plangency into the world. Books are funny things. People don't always know what they are. Books need, some, books need good fortune. They need a push. The book itself doesn't always strike readers in the way you would like them to. Mm, and somebody mm. saying the right thing about it, or a publisher moving it in the right direction, which is what Michael does, can make a huge difference. So he said, so, so Andrew Motion said, use the word plangency. He went stiff. I went stiff. The whole table went stiff like that. And then, and then and I'll never forget it, Andrew Motion said, and the winner of this year's, um, of the 2010 Man Booker Prize, is... He didn't say my name, he said the Finkler question. And for a split second, I thought, who's this bloody Finkler? <laughs> <laughs> but striking the, striking the debt, you, I mean, you, 
I had to move on from what I did in Coming From Behind. I had to strike deeper notes. I needed yes. to strike deeper notes. Yep. I was changing. And I also had to break something that I was doing, um, which I look back on now and remember the temptation of. And that's feeling, I'm, if I'm good at what, if I'm, I should never say what one's good at, but I'm very good at, at seeing how you can puncture emotion. I'm very good at seeing how, when I'm writing, that is, how you can puncture sentimentality or the false expectation of emotion or, or tragedy too easily bought. And I was finishing almost every chapter in my, in my early books with a kind of cut down, cut it down, cut it mm, down, mm. As though, and stopping the reader from enjoying that emotion. Mm. And I had to train myself to not do that, to mm. resist the joke. It's so hard if you see a good joke and you can make a good joke. And I love writing a joke. Writing a joke is not, it's not like just picking up any old joke. Creating a joke, inventing a joke, the cadences of it, the time. It's harder to do. I could make you cry in, in about 10 seconds. Um, I'd have to work a little bit harder or use some well-oiled well, well old material to get you to laugh as much. But, but, but there are sort of trigger words. There's even a joke in Zoo Time about how easy it is to make people, to make people upset. Comedy, you work harder for comedy. But that doesn't mean it's not to be resisted, and it is sometimes to be resisted. And um, that has been the struggle of my writing life, a struggle. That has, been, that has been the engagement of my writing life, which is when to be funny, when not to be funny. It's about tact, it's about, it's an aesthetic thing. Um, when, it, when is there too much comedy? When are you making your, you can make your readers laugh too much. When to hold back, when to allow other things to be felt. And that goes on being the issue of my writing. Mm. You stopped. I've stopped, but I don't have to stop. I can go on. <laughs> no, I, I, say, I, I think that's completely fascinating because I do think, I do, I do think you're, you, you, are, you are capable of so many moods. And, um, and, they are, uh, and um, as I say, I mean, I think comedy, uh, and, uh, but you still haven't quite answered the question, which was, how would you like to be remembered? I mean, you know, to, to, because I mean, you, you, you have so many other th moods in your book, other uh, your books, other than comedy. I mean, there's, there's so many depths and so many yes. kind of um, mighty every... waltz. There. I mean, it's kind of so much kind of, kind of turmoil and so much kind of unhappiness actually in them. Well, that's what make I think unhappiness makes you a writer. Yeah. Um, I think any, 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 good, any good comedy in fiction anyway, any great comic novel, is built on an underlay of, of sadness. We all know about Dickens and the blacking factory and things. And some of Dickens' best comedy is yeah. as black as hell. Yeah. I, I write very black comedy. You do. When, I, when, when my comedy is Jewish, and it's not always Jewish, I have a fund of... Um, fund of Jewish comedy to draw on, and, and I say this all the time, but it has to be said, Jews are great comedians because they don't think life is funny. Yeah. The great comedy does not come from thinking life is funny and a romp and light. My comedy isn't light. No. You, you remember a couple of I, years I, ago? Throughout the years, over the decades that I've been sort of bumping into Howard, he's always, I've always said to him, are you doing salty and black? And sometimes, most of the time, you say, yes, I'm doing salty and black. Kind of, kind of pretty, kind of. But there was no mood. reason to write otherwise. Yeah. If you're cheerful about your life, <laughs> you don't become a writer. I mean, I can make this appeal to you. Here you all are in a, in, a, in a book group of sorts. We've all got a guilty secret. We're all here, book people, people who read books. 
or who have come to read books, or who, who might very well be writing books, because somewhere or another we remember what we have been unhappy. Had we been, had we been happy, well-regulated people, we'd be David Beckham or, or Posh Spice. Where you feel you are at home in the world, you just go out and do the things that the world values. Completely right. But if you don't feel that what the world values is what you are, I don't mean you have to. Have, your life has to be hell. You just have to feel just ever so slightly nudged out of the centre of things. Um, yeah. If you're a man, you're likely to be the one that's not picked for the football team. That kind of thing. Every time you're not picked for the first we're team, there's the beginning push, of a novel in. Because we pushed <laughs> what? Because, it's the beginning of a novel. Isn't it? Yeah, because we push towards perfection all the time, aren't we? So, so you're not really now allowed not to be perfect, not well, to be not to be kind of you know, brilliant at football, brilliant at this. Watch, you know, and the whole media pushes you towards kind of perfection. But it's the perfection that you're likely, if you're going to end up being any kind of a writer or a musician or a painter, it's a perfection that you know you don't value. Mm. Because that which everybody seems to value, it's the outsider thing. It's, it's such yeah. an obvious thing to say. But if, every, if everybody values it, I mean, I've got a very bad case of this. I think anything that more than 10 people like can't be any good. <laughs> Quite right. We, I live near a, I mean, it's baffling. I live near a hotel that has a lot of um, <coughs> pop stars and things in it. And I see, yes, but let's not talk about exactly where I live. No, right. <laughs> and I come out and I, see, and I see the kids waiting for, you know, the photographers and the kids queuing up. Where, and I can't, I'm just bemused by what that might be, that you would go out and sit out in the cold to stare at somebody. They're not going to be not there. I can tell them now. I mean, I could go up to each one. You're not a novelist. You're not a novelist. You're not a novelist. <laughs> they will not be novelists. Yes. The novelist is the one. Is the is the is the is the, is the one that's thinking. Why are they doing that? Or the one yeah, that's dragged along they, and doesn't want to. Did they, did they don't have enough pain. Do you think is that the problem? Is to be They're so. well regulated. Yeah. This is the world. This is what the world likes. I like it. Yeah. I mean, this is bewildering to me. It's bewildering to me what people do. I'm truly astonished people, that people go to concerts and things, that people will travel all the way through London and go and watch the Rolling Stones. And I even like the, and I like the Rolling Stones. No, that's so I never, and I never got what it, I never felt one of those boys that wanted to do, I wasn't interested in football. I wasn't interested in anything, really. It's, it's an ego. I was interested in me, the workings of me, and the feelings of being lonely, and the feelings of being different and isolated and shy and humiliated. Mm. And it was just an instinct from the earliest stage that the minute you felt excluded or, or embarrassed by something, you had to write about it. It was just, it was almost okay. electric. The one thing sparked off the other. Okay, so do you think fiction, great fiction, and it could include poetry, springs out of pain and differentiation and... Um, being excluded and being unhappy and horror and, you know, all that. I mean, is, is that, do you think that is a kind of um, sine qua non for why people write? I think it tells you a lot about why people write. And if we try and ask ourselves, can you think of any happy novels? There must be some. And so maybe Tom Jones is quite, maybe Fielding is quite a well-organised, cheerful novelist, but he's not a patch on Richardson, who's madder. And it's certainly not a patch on Jane Austen, yeah. who clearly was unhappy. Which, why, now, the Jane Austen novels are marvellous, marvellous studies in unhappy, unhappiness just averted. Every Jane Austen novel is really a tragedy. It's almost a tragedy. 
and it's averted just by the will of the... She, she sort of says, conspire with me and let them be happy. And off they go. A fragile, the end of persuasion, one of my favourite novels in the world, the end of high-wrought... When, when, when Captain Wentworth tells Anne, Annie, tells Anne Elliot that he does indeed love her and wants to marry her, she has to go to her room and she just lies down to protect herself from the dangers of such high-wrought felicity. High-wrought felicity. Because you know, if you've got a brain in your head, that you're, you're unlikely to be happy. Mm. Something very extraordinary has to have happened for mm. you to be happy, and that it's very fragile mm. and probably won't last. Mm. Now, that's not well-regulated. Mm. That's, you know, that's mm. jumpy and nervy, and, and that's what the great art comes... For me, that's what it comes out of. Tolstoy wasn't happy. Dostoevsky wasn't happy. Kafka? <laughs> when you think you're a cockroach, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so moving on to sort of the new novel, to Zoo Time. I mean, how do you how do you how do you think about that? I mean, because I mean, uh, to, to me, there was this whole story, the backdrop of of you know book publishing and so on and so forth. We wish we're all in. Um, and then, what I loved actually very much was was this uh, relationship between. Um, um, but, but between um, Guy Abelman and his obviously his wife, I love that relationship between his wife because uh, him and his wife, his wife because I mean Vanessa wasn't it? I mean because um, and she 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 trounced him and put him down so brilliantly every time. I thought you know, and he found that fantastically exciting really. Um, and then and of course his his, his mother-in-law and. Um, so, you know, I mean, how did you, um, do you think about this as a book about sort of publishing or do you think about a, re a relationship? Because I, I loved it as a, as a relationship of... Uh, a lot uh, of my books are two books. Two books, they start from two different directions and I want to write one book and I make myself write another book. Oh, is that right? Okay. In, in Peeping Tom, I was desperate to write a book about just about marital infidelity as it was happening all around me. And, um, yeah. and, but on the other hand, there was another impulse to write a novel about Thomas Hardy, and the struggle was to make those two come together. I mean, it's such there a were, great novel. There were such two novels novel. in, in Zoo Time. One, one is a novel about a man who's in love with his mother-in-law. Um, and I wanted to write, and I couldn't decide how to do it, a tender story about um, a man who loved his, who loved his mother-in-law, um, and I can't remember now what, what the impulse was to write that tender story, but I accept that I have been, I've been married um, three times. Um, a novelist does, must do this. Um, uh, we do this so that you don't have to do it. <laughs> and I've had... Uh, but, but no more. I mean, it's done now. That's, uh, <laughs> the experiment is over. You now see before you were well a perfectly well-regulated novelist. It's something to worry about. <laughs> a happy and well-regulated novelist. But I, but, I, but I had really liked the mothers-in-law. So I'd had three wives and three mothers-in-law. And on some occasions, I actually preferred the mother-in-law <laughs> to the wife. I liked them. And I found them. And I've been lucky in that each one of them has been very attractive. Um, and I sort of thought it'd be nice to sort of write about that. I'd never not had an affair or wanted to have an affair with a mother-in-law. Let's get that straight. This is not... Are you quite so, sure about that? Absolutely certain. This is not autobiographical. People get very confused when you write a novel with an I. They think it's you. An I, a novel written with I, doesn't mean it's me at all. Doesn't mean. In fact, the minute it's I, I'm, a good novelist is going to play games to throw you around with what the I means. You know, when, um, so there's... To be no, well, the people I've spoken to here would not, for a moment, be confused. So I wanted to write that, but I've also been very struck by relations 
I've been touched on every occasion, really, by the relations that um, the mother-in-law has with her daughter. Mothers and daughters, is good, it's good material. Absolutely. It can it be very touching. Yeah. Um, that and kind the of sisterly, well. that kind yeah. of sisterly quality that you sometimes yeah. see. But also the reverse. The reverse. Anyway. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, and the anger between them. And, um, and it's actually quite tragic to, um, to watch the older, the older woman realising that the younger woman has her youth and, and her beauty and, and that's that. So it's a, it can be a kind of battle to the death. So all that I wanted to write about. At the same time, um, a lot of people were saying to me, I remember my agent saying to me, um, write, what, do you never fancy writing a comedy like your early ones, like Coming From Behind and Peeping mm, Tom? Mm, mm. Um, and I'd written several weighty novels with, you know, about Jewish themes. Yes, and, and I didn't want to do that again, um, not for a while. I, that was, I'd done that. Which um, were those novels, do you think? I mean, so the Mighty Waltzer, or which were the ones? One's you called the Finkler Question, which <laughs> you might remember. <laughs> but I mean, apart from that, I mean, who, Kaluki which, Nights. Which, 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 Kaluki Nights. Of Kaluki course. Nights. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there was no sort of spritzy, satiric comedy really that I'd written in a, for a few mm, years mm, that was like those. So I thought I would quite like to do that. But my first novel was a, as I mentioned to you, a campus novel. To my surprise, a, a polytechnic campus novel. So a campus without a campus. And you kind of need that kind of world for that sort of comedy. And I haven't been on a campus for a long time. I don't know what's happening at universities now. I wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to know what's happening at universities <laughs> now. And then when I was thinking about it, I thought, well, the literary world is a version of, of the campus. Everybody knows one another in the same way. There is the same, the same you know, pretentiousness to grandeur. There's <coughs> the same aspiration. There's the same dashing of aspiration. Yep. I don't need to tell you what your world is like. No, Actually, it wasn't so much publishing. It was writing what writers are like. It's fun to write about writers sometimes. I could only ever do it comically. I couldn't write a serious, solemn novel about being a novelist and the pains of writing. I couldn't do that. But a comic novel in which every novelist is jealous of every other novelist, in which, you know, the, com the comedies of things like, you, you know, you do an event with, a, with, a, with, a, with another writer and the other writer is very hot and you might not be at the moment, or you're the one that's hot and the other writer isn't. And then you both sit at a table signing, signing books. And you've got two people in front of you, and they've got a long, long, long. <laughs> and how you deal with that, and what you do, and um, but did you the feel anguish, after, the after, after you won the Booker? Do you have the, you had those long lines? Did you feel good about that? I had the longest lines I've ever seen. Good, after good, the good, good. But, but were they really long? They I mean, were really long. Yeah. yeah, they were really, really. And were the other writers really short? Was that kind of, did that, 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 yes, some of did them that had, help. Some of them had no. No lines, no at, lines all. at all. And I thought I could do something lordly and, you know, buy 20. Yes, absolutely. Sign 20 some for of me his. with you, but then you yes, think yes. that would just be rubbing it in. But I remember when I had a really long line, there was somebody next to me who hadn't won a Booker Prize and hadn't written a novel, but, was, but was, had written a book about the aristocracy or something. And she had a very long line. Um, but I couldn't tell if my line was longer than her line. So every time I'd sign a book, I'd look up to see, to see if I could see the end of the line. To see if I'm, and then one of, the, one of the tricks that you can do to make your line long is to slow your line down. <laughs> and you can slow your line down by writing elaborate messages in the thing. So and so. And having more conversation. So many a person has come up to me and all they've wanted was, you know, my signature there. 
but they're getting there. Hello, how are you? <laughs> okay, this is to you. What about your children? Should we put your children? Your dog, what's your dog's name? Let's put that in there. And then you write them a quote from your favourite novel, the end, last line of Middlemarch, the first line of Dombey and Son, and, and that way. So all these things struck me as, you know, the painful, the, the, the stuff you laugh at, but, you know, I hope you notice that even as I'm laughing here, there's pain. There's pain in There is pain in this. There is pain. In the rivalry of writers, there is immense pain. Because it's a world in which, for most of the time, there is little reward for your, for your labours. Yeah. It can be wonderful. And, and people, people who aspire to be writers see the great stories. God, there's all this money to be made and all this fame. But a lot of the time, there isn't all this money to be made. And a lot of the time, there's not much fame. And it's, it, has its, it has its pains. So I thought that kind of, I'd like to write that kind of novel as well. So I had these two novels, and I thought, well, the way to do this is one of my beefs about contemporary literature is we live in such a squeamish times, really, for all that sometimes we think we live in wild times. And the kind of wild man novel, um, the kind of Henry Miller novel, the J.P. Don Levy novel, the early Leonard Cohen, novels like that, the Marquis de Sade, really made me wicked, filthy novels. Um, you couldn't write those anymore. And I've always wanted, to, and, and I've never been able to write those, but I've always thought I'd like to be a wilder novelist than I am. I'd like to, be, I'd like to have been a wilder man than I am. I once heard that somebody had called me, somebody in the literary world had called me the most dangerous man in London. <laughs> and I can't tell you how, what that, that made me feel so fantastic. Yeah, of course. Weeks and weeks and weeks, and I would of go course. through the streets with my coat turned up. And unfortunately, I'd stopped smoking. I thought this is terrible because Did I should you tell be people? smoking now. I should have a bottle of whiskey in my yeah. hand. And I kind of bumped into people in the street. You Do know, you to realize let them know you don't, don't come near me, Buster, because you're I coming am near me. I'm so dangerous. It was so fantastic. And I thought, and of course, it's ridiculous that you should feel that. But I have always wanted to be a more dangerous writer. You would like me to be a sweeter writer sometimes, I feel. Or you like me as a sweet writer. Oh, and I like no, no, me... No, that's not true. That's not true. No, that's all right. right. Okay, that's well, right. we're no, exaggerating no, 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 no. the whole yeah, thing. It's not true. It's Hyperbole not true. is the name of the game. Yeah, yeah. I don't really want to be that dangerous, and you don't really want me to be that sweet. But there are... <laughs> and there is in me the good boy. You know, there is in me someone that wants my, my mother yeah. and my, yeah, yeah. my granny, if she was still alive, to love me yeah. for the nice books. There is that... I think every, inside every bad boy, there's a good boy trying, good boy to, get trying out. to get out. Well, yeah, my yeah. good boy got out yeah, a long yeah. time yeah. ago, yeah, yeah, no, no. Um, and I can't. I'm trying to push the good boy back. So I thought it would be. So I feel, feel two things: a that the world doesn't value the good boy, and b uh, the bad boy, and b I'm not bad enough to be a bad boy. So I thought I would make my hero want to be a bad boy, um, and one of the ways that he could want to be a bad boy is by having go pressing ahead and turning his affection for his mother-in-law into a real-life affair. Yeah. Then if he was actually having an affair with his mother-in-law, the point being, of course, no one would give a damn. You know, no one, no one would be, fine, he's having an affair with his mother-in-law. Big deal. That's not such a terrible thing. I got trumped by Martin Amis. <laughs> Martin Amis, when I thought I'd done this wicked thing about, you know, the, a man thinking about having an affair with his mother-in-law, and I'm not going to tell you whether he, he has it or not, I discover Martin Amis has one of his characters um, actually sleeping with his grandma. <laughs> See, there's what a bad was, boy. Where, where was that? See, there's was a bad that, boy. Was that in some Lionel Asbury? Yes, in Lionel Asbury. Must read that. He's, he has the courage to be, to be badder, to, yeah. be, to, be, to be badder than I am. But this would also give me the opportunity do you feel to... Did you feel novelists are in competition for badness? Sometimes worry about that. Only me and Martin Amis. I, just, I, just don't think, I sometimes think that you, you, you guys are kind of like, how, how far can we go? Well, there aren't many... 
Oh, no, it, it doesn't feel like that. There aren't many bad boys out there, actually. And when they are, I, I kind of, you know, you often don't like it very much. People think that because I made my, my hero in here love, uh, love uh, uh, Henry Miller and writers like that, that these are the writers I really admire. They're not. See, I'm a Jane Austen man. How can I be at one and the same time a Jane Austen man and the most dangerous man in London? <laughs> you see my dilemma. That's a very good question. Very good question. So I give I, I give Guy that. Abelman that, that dilemma too, and it's yeah. a source I think of some good of some good comedy. Yeah. Certainly a rich it's certainly rich rich material. Yes, I need to think about that. Okay, fine. So I t where are we? Um, uh, yes, questions. I, th I think I, th I, I hope people have got questions because I still got one or two, but I, which, I, which I can bring up. But I mean. So no, there's a hand up already. Should we, should we throw this open to yeah. everybody? Because, I mean, yeah, that'd be great. So, 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 questions? Comic and serious. My German translator is 92 years old. She's Jewish. She escaped from Austria in 1938. And she told me off once for being frivolous. And she said to me, Richard, life is ernst. And I said, you're quite right, Jerry. And that's why we need to be unernst. Perfect. Sorry, it wasn't a question. Perfect. No, but it's perfect. No, it's fine. It's nice to hear it, and I, you know, I know exactly what she means. Fri frivolity is the one I can't bear. I just Shakespeare does it best. Shakespeare yes. does frivolous best. No, no, the, the, the does, does it, yes. People laughing in Hamlet. Yes. Well, Hamlet's a great comedy as well as a great tragedy, and the great ones don't have. We were taught at school about comic relief. Uh, I hate the idea of comic relief. Although there's a sad scene and then a, and then a not sad scene. That's not how it goes. And the best writers, you don't know whether it's comedy or tragedy. And I hope in me, I've said this to you before, I, for me, the highest, the highest accolade yeah. I could have from a reader is for someone to say, I, this sentence made me laugh and cry at the same time. And when laughter moves into tears, I mean bitter tears, um, and when tears move into laughter, I mean, I don't know, when that happens to me as a reader, I feel this is, this is what it's for. This is what life is for. I am never happier than savouring well, that. When you were uh, writing about the older and younger woman, were you thinking of Rosie Cavalier? No, I wasn't. Right. I'd like to say I was, because that would be, no, 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 that'd be good, but I wasn't. No, I wasn't. No, I didn't, didn't even think of that. No, didn't. Thank you. Hello. Do you think that writing is really about being a bad boy or a good boy, or do you think it's about being thoroughly disgusted with everything or being idealistic? Do I have to choose? I'm trying to think where I'm on that. Very disgusted with things. But this is a novel which is, I don't think it's dis this particular novel is not disgusted with things, but it's sort of I give, Guy, I give my hero Guy Abelman you know, the opportunity to look at what's going on in, in, in writing and reading, particularly in reading, and think it's the end. I like writing about the end. I like writing kind of apocalyptic novels. It goes with my temperament to mm. write apocalyptic novels. I love doing that. Um, but it's also partly through, partly through Guy Abelman's wife who sees right through him and who knows that you know, there's nothing, nothing that makes a failed writer feel a little bit better than to think that the writing world's had it and no one can read and, and that's why I'm not being read. And she's very good at saying, all this does, all your pessimism does is explain the world to you and make you feel better. And she exists partly 
apart from being a character in her own right, she exists as a, a, in, the, in the novel to knock him down all the time. So I think it is both wonderful to write about, so it's stronger than disgust, it's wonderful to write about, you know, despair, out of despair, really, um, and feel this is it, it's all over. It's thrilling, strangely exhilarating to do, to do an apocalyptic book. But also, for me, it was very important that, it, that, it's, that one laughs at it too, that it's preposterous. So because this is a novel, and a novel can do what no other form can do, you can believe one thing and you can believe absolutely the opposite all at once. So do you feel publishing is, a, as it were, as, as an end? I mean, because as, as I was, I don't know, because as I was saying, we're talking today, I, I, I go through it kind of like head in the sand, just sort of saying, let's just do these books. Um, and, um, but I mean, this is, this is a book about, you know, the end of publishing and the end of books and the end of writing. And, well, know, look, I you, mean, how, how, you go how, into your office how, and you see manuscripts you... on all sorts of subjects and there are people working away in piles like that of non-fiction. And you just think people are writing away and very interesting things are being written. And it's yeah. been a good year for the novel this year. I was conscious of this. Do you think so? In what way? I think there have been lots of interesting novels written from all over the show. People okay, of like all what? ages like writing. What? No, I don't want to get talking, I'm talking okay, about okay. what. I just feel it. Um, <coughs> I just feel it that there are that there are good things there, um, and if I agree with Guy Abelman over anything, and I do sometimes, and I don't at others, um, <coughs> um, it's the reading problem. I think people are. It's one of the jokes of the Finkler, of the excuse me of Zoo Time that everybody will be right. That one day soon everybody will be writing and nobody will be reading. Milan Kundera was talking about this madness of writing that sees the world. Graphomania, I think he called it, years ago in a novel. Really, and I think yeah. there is a graphomania. Everybody wants to write a bloody novel. Everybody yeah, they wants do, to they write do, right. And, and, and there are it's many good novels out, being written. It? it goes on and on and on. And what's going to happen if there's no one left to read it? And they won't just not be left to read it because they are themselves writing, read, writing their own novels, but because I do think there is, and this is much more about what when the novel worries about literature, it's much more about this than it's about what's going on in publishing and e-books and all that. Sure, sure, sure. It's, what's ha it's the, way, the way, for one reason or another, it seems to me the language of reading, the language that we employ to talk about books, has suffered a deterioration. And it doesn't matter to me that people have been saying this for years. And people say, oh, deteriorate, everybody's been saying things deteriorate. Yes, they have. That's a, a, an important literary form. The belief that it's all over is an important literary form. You need somebody saying it's all over all the time. Particularly in an age of triumphalism like ours, which is, oh, isn't blogging wonderful? Isn't the internet wonderful? Isn't tweeting yeah. wonderful? The more you get that, the more you need somebody like Guy Abelman or, or me occasionally pulling yeah. the strings saying, no, it's not. It's not that wonderful at all. And this novel begins yeah. at a reading group. Not a reading group like this, an entirely different reading group. A hostile reading group. And I've been to many. You wonder why you were invited. I've been invited by some. I'm, I'm not always been certain I would get out alive. <laughs> because you go in and they're very, very nice to you. And they give you a drink and they give you a cake. And then they tear you apart. The worst, actually, that, that I went to was a book group run by my own sister-in-law. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is going to be nice. They're going to be friendly here. And they said, the best part, you know the best part of this novel? The words, the end. <laughs> and somebody said, no, I wasn't prepared to get that far. I thought the best part of this novel was the jacket, and then on they go. And then you get caught up in that monstrous, monstrous thing, which is the language of the reading group, of the book group, the book group now, which is, you know, I don't like the characters. So that's a big, that's, so a very, that's a very big question. Can I just stop you there? Because 
you know, we have these discussions all the time in our editorial meetings, you know, which is, you know, do you have to fall in love with the character? And you wrote a very good piece in uh, Bad Boy's Fiction in the Guardian saying, no, you don't. And I mean, you know, uh, a certain kind of writing says, you don't have to fall in love with the characters, but do you fall in love with, you know, Conrad's characters? Or do you fall in love with, you know, Lawrence's characters? Or, you know, um, but you, of course you do fall in love with Dickens's characters. And so, and so, so do, is that what a novel is actually supposed to do? I, I, I think it's quite. I think it's a really interesting question because I mean, is that what we're supposed to be doing, looking for? Because when well, we do you probably, think we, that's we, such we, an interesting we, question. No, we, but the answer is obvious. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we, you know, we talk about books all the time. We say, well, and we get this thing. You know, do did we fall in love with the characters? Then we didn't fall in love with the characters. We didn't fall in. Love with, you know, I mean, is yeah, okay. So, 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 so uh, no, 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 no. It is, is it worse than I thought. Well, this was just going on in a reading room. You're now telling me this is going on in one of the most interesting. I think publishing. I think publishing. You know, we do. You know, you know. Do we need to fall in love with the character no, or not? No, no, no. But then it's not to publishing. But it is to do with do we need to do that? Do we no, need... but the answer is no. No, no, no. I agree. You can. You you can fall in love with characters. You can be utterly absorbed in the character. You can't. Jane Austen, may, I don't know whether I fall in love with those women, but when I'm reading Jane Austen, nothing in the world matters to me more than where the, the, uh, Anne Elliot get, gets back with Mr. Wentworth, or, or Catherine Bennett ends up with Darcy. Nothing, she, because she is as good as she is, and she does one of those things that novels do most wonderfully, she makes you feel the, the, the bonds can be falling outside, the world can be going to pieces. Nothing matters more than that at that moment. And you are, and you are entering into the, every heartbeat of, of Jane Austen's character you feel for. That's great. But there are millions of different kinds of novels that don't do that at all. And you can't want every novel to be that sort of thing. The other one, of course, which is linked to, you know, are they likeable, is can you identify with them? And the problem with that is it, it can be the case that a novelist is so bad at his job that he makes you not interested in any of the characters or any of the, anything that's happening. But it might also be, and this is what I ended up saying to people at Reading Group, it might just be the reason you can't identify Sir, Madam, is you've got no intelligence, no imagination, <laughs> no capacity to empathise. And that idea, that any kind of humility before a book, which it might be, you know, am I capable of this? Absolutely. Am I up to this? Yeah, quite right. This? Quite am right. Sure enough, people suppose that the minute, the minute they don't get or they don't like, that's yeah. a judgment on the book. Because the novel... Nine times out of ten, it's a judgment on the reader. Yeah, because absolutely right, because a, no, a novel can be, it's a challenge for reader, it's an yes. adventure, it's kind of yes. somewhere you want to go. Yes. Uh, instead of being sort of like a warm bath, which yes. is kind of what most, yes. a lot of people want it to be. And sometimes the, more, the great challenge can be to read about someone who is not, who is not like you at all. Quite right. Those moments in, 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 in Middlemarch, another great novel, um, when George Eliot... I mean, Middlemarch contains the best arguments, some of the best arguments for the novel, that there are, the reason for novels in, contained in, 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 in George Eliot. She makes you like... She makes you come up against someone like Kazabon or Bolstrode, mm, entirely mm, horrible people. Mm, mm. And then she says she makes it, she's do, doing it through her characters. That yeah. character has to learn what it's like. What you, you don't know anything about another character until you know what it's like, how the, life, how the world feels to them. Mm. And the act of you know, reading about Kazabon is about l discovering what the world feels like to Kazabon. You need no more sympathy than that. This is what the world feels like. To yes, that's absolutely right. The one, one of the most wonderful creations in literature is, 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 Anna, is Anna Karenina's brother, uh, Steve Oblonsky. 
who is in, the, in, the, in this novel, which is about the, you know, the shocking things that infidelity can do to people's lives, the cruelties, here is the cruelest man you could have. No. Right at the very beginning, he is, you know, he's introduced as a heartless, heartless philanderer. And the pain he causes to his wife and his children is immeasurable. Mm. He makes you care about him. Yeah, brilliant. Not like him, not approve of him, not yeah. sympathize yeah. with yeah. him, yeah. God help us, but just this is what it's like to be a Blonsky. Mm. This is how a Blonsky, when a Blonsky mm. sits on the chair and, and drinks his alcohol and, and strokes his waistcoat, this is what it's like to occupy a Blonsky's body. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 yes, before. it's like Milton's Satan. I mean, it's sort of. Um, to me, I think sort of great art and great literature is that what it does, it makes you understand um, how you can't make judgment, judgments at all. You can't make those judgments. I mean, sort of every, you have to understand every kind of nuance yes. of, of, of these yes. personalities. And it's not about falling in love, it's about understanding the, the strangeness and the weirdness and the oddness of, and of human beings. Yes, and that can entail falling out of love with yourself. Yeah. Some of the great books make you fall completely out of love with yourself. You realise your limitations. My God, what I don't know. My God, I've thought this and I should have thought that. Yeah. My God, what a limited creature yeah. I am. And the great thing when, when art makes you do that is you don't run out and kill yourself. You go on reading the book. Yeah. At the end of the book, you feel yeah. books done something wonderful. But you're deeply enriched the in the process. I yes. Yeah. I am made other. Yeah. Well, I think we got there then. Uh, <laughs> next question. <laughs> Hello. Um, so you mentioned this, uh, the story of the long lines. So just expanding on that, I'm interested in uh, whether recognition of your work is, is actually genuinely important to you. And if it is, then at what level is it? When you're writing your book, are you thinking about what your wife might think, what the editor might think, what random people in the public might think, or winning prizes, or what really... And what, so what does relieve you from the pain, in other words? It, being, being, being read is the thing that you want. Being read is the first thing that you want, um, and that any writer wants. A musician wants to be heard, a painter wants to be looked at, uh, a writer wants to be read. And the recognition part is that which will give you readers. The great thing about winning a prize is not the prize itself. I've always believed, really, I, should, I, should, I and no other writer should want to win a prize. That's for children. But when you do win a prize like that, it breaks you through into the world of readers because without it, it is very, very, very difficult unless you slip into a little genre where it's not you they're reading, they're just reading, you know, the Edinburgh crime novel or, you know, or the Scandinavian crime novel and you just slip, slip into that box. If you don't slip into a box, a ready-made box, then you have to fight for readers every time and it's hard to get them. So a prize can do that. That's the, that's the justification for a prize and nothing else. It gives you readers. But you're certainly not thinking of any of those things when you're writing. I'm certainly not. What you're doing is you're writing the best thing that you can do and you're wanting it to please you. I mean, I become my ideal reader when I'm writing. Um, and I know if a thing isn't good. You don't always know, but you hope that you know when a thing isn't good. I want to make myself laugh. I want to make myself cry. I love it when, I'm, when I write something that makes me laugh. And I love it when I, when I write something that makes me stop and I can feel my, my heart beating and I'm upset by it and, and so on. But there's no, there should be no consideration for, for anything else. No calculation at all. No, what will anybody think? No, just this is the best thing. And then when you're finished, you think, well, you know, if the world doesn't know that this is the greatest novel that's ever been written, it's mad. <laughs> but you, but while, you, while you're doing it, no, it's the thing, it, the thing itself is so engrossing, apart from anything else. There isn't time. 
exquisite space. I mean, it is a wonderful thing. I don't know how many of you write, but writing is a wonderful thing once you're loving it. It took me a long time to love it because I always wanted to do it, and it always felt a chore. Now almost anything else feels a chore. It's one of the, you know, it's one of the rewards of getting old and having written a few books, that there's nothing else you want to do. And you start to, and, and once you feel, once you're confident enough to relax in the writing, and then to marvel at what, you know, these things that take, that take shape and happen without your, without your apparently, apparently, having anything to do with it. The characters who, you know, you didn't know you were going to create in the morning, this one falls in love with that one, you didn't know who they were the day before. And then a thought, too, because I also like the discursive part of, of writing. And I know a lot of people don't like thoughts in, in novels. I do. I like a novelist who thinks. I like George Eliot lecturing to me. I love it. I like Milan Kundra lecturing to me. I love D.H. Lawrence telling me how to love and live, pushing me about. It's absolutely, absolutely great. And I do a little bit of that. And, and when those sentences or thoughts write themselves, when a thought appears that you never knew you had, it's like magic. Where's that thought come from? It's partly, it's in language. It's as though language contains the words themselves, if you can tap into their richness, down into the roots of, the, of, of, of language, it's, it's as though there you will find everything. Thoughts, ideas, characters, emotions. And that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the activity. You're, bury, you're burying yourself deep, deep into words. And you know when you're not writing well, you know you're finding words on the, the you've just, it's like found objects and um, they're on the ground you've just found them uh, those, those words that's what the cliche is the commonplace it's the bit of stuff that's on the ground and you know that you're only working well when you're going down 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 as you can go yeah. how do you write from nine to five or when you are inspired do you ever get writer's block was the question heard at the back yes yeah. I've never had what you can call writer's block. I have bad days and I have good days and I have periods in which I'm not sure which novel I want to write or if there's any novel I want to write. Um, um, and when you get... It depends where you are in a book. But when a book's going well, um, then you I like to write from kind of half past seven, eight o'clock in the morning after the morning, morning tea with my wife and conversation. Um, and then I will write all day, really. I'll write... I can't, I'm not a night writer. I can't do night writing. I can't do the Dostoevsky thing, staying up all night. I could never write it. I don't like it. I don't like the feeling. I don't like what you then write. On the occasions when I have written through the night, the following day when I look at it, I throw it all away. I don't like it. But I can go from seven till seven <coughs> with a little break. You don't want to stop. The thing is, once you're really going, you don't, you don't want to stop. And all you then want to do is, when you're tired of writing, is go to bed early so that you can get up the following day and go back. It's very engrossing. I recommend it. <laughs> I know you said before when, when you were pressed that you didn't want to talk about other authors, authors that were doing interesting things now. Um, but, but I wonder if I could take a slightly different slant. One of the, the interesting things I found about your books has been, I, I stumbled upon it through a, a debate that we talked about before and thought, this is somebody that's very funny, has an interesting point of view. I'd like to read something else that he's done. If you were getting on a plane tomorrow and you could take three books with you, what would they be? New books. Doesn't matter. Well, what have I just taken on? I've recently been traveling with um, Ferdinand Selim, who I always knew I should read and I haven't read, and he's the ultimate bad boy. An absolutely vile, loathsome Nazi of a man who, what do you know, writes wonderfully. Absolutely. What did he write? 
he writes Death on the Installment Plan, and the one I've just been reading is Journey, Journey to the End of the Night. It's fantastic. It's, he just has that thing which, you, which, which the great writer has immediately, and I'm reading him in translation. Um, you just see everything. It just makes you see everything. Everything is vivid to you. And that's the first thing you want, you want from any writer, that you see it. Was it Conrad who says, I want you to see and feel? I want nothing else. I just want to make you see and feel. I think, I think it was. Um, and I've just been struggling with a writer that everybody loves and I'm discovering I'm not, called Seabolt. Um, WG. Yeah, who's not, do, who's not doing it for me. Um, Is he not? No, not doing it for me at all. Um, and I don't know what else I would read at the moment. I haven't got time. I mean, reading is quite... Reading is quite... I read now because do I need a particular voice? I felt I needed Ferdinand <coughs> in my head for thinking about what he would... What, what my hero would like. I had to work out what my hero would like and then read what he would like and see why he would like them. And he's right, my hero. He's got quite good taste. He likes, you know, lively things. Reading Henry Miller again. I'd forgotten how funny Henry Miller is. I read Henry Miller as a school because it was dirty. So we all knew the dirty bits. And reading it now, he's very, very funny. And I've got to write a, I've got to write an article for the radio um, soon about great expectations. And I often travel with great, great, great expectations is one of my favourite novels. So, but you must be invited, you know, by the papers over, you know, to do your books of the year and so on. And what, what, what? I, don't, I won't do those. <coughs> do books of the year because it's invidious. Because if I don't like a book written by my friend, I've hurt his feelings. So yeah. I'd rather not say, I'd yeah. rather not say, I wouldn't do it. I yeah. don't like it. If I see a friend of mine doing books of the year and I'm not in it, <laughs> I, don't, I don't say that's the end of the friendship, but it's, it's, <laughs> it puts an unspoken strain on it. So I'm not going to do to somebody else. <laughs> I have enough mental lists of people I've got to pay back. <laughs> Book a six, six Booker Prize judges for... 25 years, <laughs> apart from on one particular year. Yeah. List reviewers, you know, there's a limit to the number of people. So I don't want to hurt anybody's, hurt anybody's feelings. It's hurtful for people not to like me, but we are thin skin. I mean, writers are, given everything I've said about what the, what the instinct to write comes out of, we are bound to be thin skinned. Nobody Quite is indifferent to the fact that their book is not liked. <coughs> of course. You can't say to I mean, people, right, I right, admire right. you like mad, I think you're terrific, I just didn't like your new book. That is not forgiven. It, <laughs> it can't be said. So the question, the question has to be asked, how much torture is writing? I mean, it must be torture. No, the, tor the, no, the torture begins when your book's finished. Yeah. Everything that's horrible about writing yeah, no, I get that. happens when your book's finished. All the joy... Yeah, 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 yeah. Abso I absolutely get that. Yes, 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 yes. If you're having a bad run, if you're not selling many, if you're getting bad reviews, if you feel people don't get it, and trust me, you can feel that sometimes. You can feel that sometimes. You have to remind yourself of the essential truth that you're doing it for the work, and it's yeah, only yeah. the work that counts. And yeah. the love of the work and the, and the pleasure that you get doing, doing the stuff and writing is what it's about. And afterwards, it's rubbish. It's horrible. Does your agent like it? Do you like it? Um, do the reviewers like it? Do you I'm like it? About money. Uh, oh, I'll like it. It won't go out of the house unless I like it. But the writing is everything. And everything else, I sometimes think if one could just, just skip it. You hear yeah. of some writers who finish the book, send it into their publishers and leave. Yeah. Leave the country. Yeah. The great story is, is when Norman Mailer, Norman Mailer finished The Naked of the Dead and then I think was I don't know, within Europe, travelling around Europe, thought nothing would happen. Then he got, gets a telegram to come back, come back, you know, 
you're, you're the number, you're the New York Times bestseller and everybody loves your book. So we drive it back. That's, that's the one you, you, you hope for. Good. So where, uh, have you got some, oh yes, okay. Rip. If I've understood you correctly, sort of hurt and angst and loneliness is part of what's required to write the best books. You've indicated you're happily married now, you've got your prize, you're more successful than ever. What do you draw upon to write what hopefully will be your, your greatest book as ahead as opposed to in the past? Well, you always hope that. What you draw on is everything that came before. I um, People ask me how I was able to write Zootime about um, a failed writer and someone feeling absolutely miserable about the world having won the Booker Prize. Uh, retrospective bitterness. <laughs> and I can, I can call it up like that. And every writer I know can call it up like that. Those terrible years. Those terrible years. All right, we weren't starving. All right, we weren't being shot by anybody. But we couldn't walk past the bookshop. Those years when you know you can't walk past the bookshop when a book of yours has just come out because you know it won't be in the window. And the books by everybody else you've ever heard of all in the window. Thousands of copies of them. Piles of no you. So you then have to chart, map a journey around London which avoids any bookshop. <laughs> Don't say no as though this is a mere nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you can always go back and, and find inspiration. Is it possible to come from a comfortable spot in your life and still write a great novel without going backwards, but getting the source from where you are now? Well, I think so, yes, because after all, the story of the world is not just the story of you. And just because you are successful, just because if we're just talking about literature, just because you won a prize doesn't mean that you know everything is healthy in the world. That's just a fluke. That is, just a, that is just a piece of luck. You know, that happens. That doesn't change the landscape. It changed the landscape for you, but it doesn't change what's true. It is still the case that in book, that in book groups all over the country, people are saying, you know, I don't like the characters. <laughs> and they're saying it about my books. And they say it about my book that won the Booker Prize. I made the mistake for a little while of thinking, oh, I know what I'll do. I'm, 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 this is, I'm enjoying this so much. Praise wherever I look. I'll have a little look at reviews on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, but there the... there's no defeating the reviewer, you know, the utterly, <sighs> utterly, utterly ignorant reviewer of Amazon who thinks that, you know, every limitation that he has as a human being is a mark against you as a writer. <laughs> and there it is. And there it is. There it still is. So you can know, so in that sense, but also. But you're right, also, I mean, they're, they're, they're all incompletely wrong. You're quite right. I mean, the, 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 that that Finkler has just got sort of fabulous characters and all to be admired and loved and enjoyed. And um, and you and 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 to, to actually criticise those characters, I think was, was is 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 a bad thing to do. I must say. I mean, I I, I love them. I love them. I love them all. I, I love them all. <laughs> I wanted. I wanted to be one of them, if it was, uh, sort of the Treslov who wanted to be Jewish. I mean, I identify, <laughs> I identify so closely that my, um, I decided that my grandmother's who had been out to Brooklyn or great grandmother, I can't remember what she was, had, had actually uh, obviously sort of had an affair with a Jewish man, and I was partially Jewish. I mean, it was sort of I was so enraptured by the whole thing. Well, I've I mean, that that that's the whole. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're not the only one. <laughs> But I mean, that's the, the, but that is the whole point. I mean, it's the whole point is that sort of people 
need to sort of think about literature as kind of and, and characters as, as as what can we learn or understand from these characters rather than do we feel they're a bit like me, you know, which which I think is kind of incredible. It's it's it's, it's a sort of deleterious aspect of modern literature reading. Yes, well, then that's you know that's if, the, if that's one of the what's one of the passions that fires this particular book. Mm. But as but, but but your question might go beyond. You know, you might say, well, never mind. You know how you feel about literature, but life, happiness, and so on. I would have thought it is possible to feel personally happy and nonetheless to be able to you know to to, to see and evoke misery and distress around you. It must be that must be. Yeah. When I um, I mean, you know, since, <coughs> since you ask, I feel I've been in, you know, in, in, in fortunate um, and enjoying, you know, a, a, a marvelous domestic life, and I've been happy, and I wasn't able to. Is that good for you? Do you think? I mean, well, sorry, sorry, Jenny. I, I don't. Where are you? I mean, is, is happiness good for you? Do you think? I mean, I'm worried about that. Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised. I'm approaching this. Yeah. Um, and we had that conversation. I remember my wife said, "I am worried. You know, I." I you, you are clearly happy, and I'm happy, and we seem to be happy. What's this going to do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we're, we're, we're all worried. We're all worried about this. Yeah, I've yeah. written more books in the last ten years at a you know at a greater rate than I ever have before. They have they have done better, and they are I think they are I think better. I don't I don't. Um, but that's not a contradiction of my saying that you know that the, uh, the misery that you start with, you, you know, you just bedded in it. You're bedded in the memory of things, and it's not just that you have to look backwards, but you, you carry it with you. You carry the things that made you the person that you are odd and strange and shy and awkward and, and, and embarrassed and ashamed of all sorts of things. You carry them, but not just forgotten. Hmm? Oh, well, you don't think about that. That's other people have to see. Happiness writes twice. How can it what? Happiness writes twice. Happiness writes twice. Twice. I've never quite known what that means, actually. I've seen it on a card, but I've never known what it okay, means. Okay, um... Uh, hang on. Am I being obtuse and missing? No, not at all, but, but uh, you were talking about it, and the third reason why you shouldn't be happy and talented, in fact, obviously well, you, you have no misery to draw on. Well, you can kind if of... you can be creative and talented. I don't know where the talent... Talent is not just... You're not no. just born with it. Um, and the creative impulse isn't just kind of mysteriously there. It's 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 a mixture of all sorts of things, and, uh, and one knows. I'm thinking just what you said reminded me of, interestingly though, what's that Coleridge thing talking about Shakespeare? Very strange Coleridge thing, and he talks about Shakespeare. It's almost a picture like Shakespeare being a dolphin in the water, rolling around and reveling, reveling in his genius. And it, I never quite believed it, you know, as though he's this kind of happy fish. Shakespeare's this happy fish enjoying the warm waters of, well, where what were the waters? He was, no, you he know, he lived in Birmingham. And you do wonder what drove Shakespeare, I must say. Well, you couldn't have done, you couldn't have invented Macbeth. Unless you were pretty unless unhappy. You knew, unless you knew what some of those people yeah, would have said, tomorrow yeah. and tomorrow yeah, and tomorrow. Yeah, and I don't say yeah. that that's what Shakespeare thought. Um, yeah, obviously yeah. not, that's a character. But you couldn't have, you couldn't have, you couldn't have made that move into yeah. into into Macbeth's mind yeah. without knowing something of that. You do one that you do one. I begin to was grow good. weary of the you know, all that stuff. All zeal about my heart. And the number of people who say all zeal about my heart. I have of I have of late. Wherefore I know not. Hamlet lost all my mirth. Mm. 
couldn't say that unless you know what it's like to have yeah, lost absolutely, all the absolutely. Absolutely. You do wonder what on earth was going on in there. Anyway, and we do wonder what on earth is going on in you, Howard. But, I mean, um, but, but you are here to tell us, and you have told us, and I think that probably roundabout wraps it up. And we have a glass of wine now. We've done yes, I, have, we, have we got any more wine left? Yeah, we've done a glass of wine. And, um, well, thank you very, very, very much, Howard. I mean, I'm, I am wildly and profoundly and happily, of course, Proud to be your editor and publisher, and we are fantastically proud. Look, look, look! There you are. Look, uh, there is there is Howard in in, in our um, well, uh, Nigel. What was it? Twenty first was it? Yeah, twenty first celebration of being Bloomsbury, and there you are. And we are fantastically, utterly, unbelievably proud of you. It's mutual. And uh, no, don't do that. And uh, I'm, I'm praising you now. And um, and thank you so much. For, and there we are. Fantastic. Thank you.